This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Global virus cases, Tim, 91 million, topping 91 million, deaths surpassing 1.94 million, vaccines given out, more than 29 million shots given worldwide. Cannot, cannot come soon enough to vaccine for, for widespread vaccination, I should say. Exactly. And fingers crossed that it continues to pick up speed. Back with us is Dr. Sandro Galea. He's dean and professor at uh, Boston University School of Public Health, author of Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. He joins us once again on the phone from Boston. Dr. Galea, nice to have you here. Happy New Year. Uh, how are you? Tell me kind of what's going on in your world from an academic level as well as, well as from what you're seeing on uh, on the vaccine and COVID. Happy New Year, Carol, and uh, Happy New Year, Tim. Um, I am, uh, I am, as we've discussed on the show before. I'm, I am fortunately well, and my family is well. And uh, these are these are difficult times. I find myself entering the new year with an equal mix of trepidation and hope. Mm. And uh, on and any given day, I try to make sure that hope overtakes trepidation. Now, you know why trepidation? Well, we have a lot of challenges we're still facing as a country, separate and apart from. The politics that we are all living through, we, COVID remains a really important problem. The economy, which is, is a result of COVID, remains an important problem. And, and all of this, as we've discussed, is on a foundation of structural issues like racism that we have been dealing with as a country for a long time. So I think those things all give me trepidation. All, all of a sudden, I want you for an hour. I'm just going to tell you. Um, Sandra, let me ask you something, though. What we saw last week, obviously, the dysfunction um, that I think it's safe to say has been caused by our president, whether it's internally within the government and then more more broadly across society. How do you think that has hindered, in some ways, the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine? I, I think enormously. I, I, I don't think we can over overstate how much lack of federal leadership has hindered our response to COVID. We've vaccinated about 9 million people in the country right now. And if we keep vaccinating at this rate, it will take us two years before we vaccinate the whole country, which, of course, is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And remember, this is in the, in the context of a lot of promises that have been made by the, by the executive branch. So I, I, politics has been an integral part of the COVID story right from the beginning. It has been a part of the story as to why we separated from WHO. It's been part of the story why half the country doesn't seem to believe that COVID is a real thing. It's been part of the story as to why we do or don't wear vaccine, uh, wear masks. And, and I think... It's a real reminder that, uh, you know, Rudolf Verka, one of the fathers of microbiology, said that medicine is politics on a grand scale. And we've never seen that more clearly than we have in 2020. I'm wondering about the rollout of vaccine right now. Here we are. We're almost exactly a month into when that first shot was given. What have we learned about the right way to give people the vaccine? And I mean, age wise, profession wise, what is the right approach? Well, fundamentally, our priorities are right. And, and by that, I mean that we are prioritizing healthcare workers and people at highest risk. And those are people of the older age groups and people with underlying conditions. So I think all of that, we have the concepts correct. I think what, where we're stumbling uh, is really at the implementation and the pragmatics. So a couple of things that we've learned. Number one is that the guidelines are being interpreted very strictly 
in clinics and hospitals and nursing homes, which means that a lot of vaccine is going unused because there are not enough people in that risk category to get the vaccine in that particular spot. And that clearly needs to be loosened. And number two, we are realizing that the vaccine distribution is going through these formal channels of hospitals and nursing homes, and it's not happening fast enough to get to the people who are at high risk, people over a certain age and people with underlying conditions. And there are states that have done well. You know, we shouldn't forget that. For example, West Virginia had vaccinated everybody in its, uh, in its assisted living facilities, nursing homes, um, before Christmas, which is quite remarkable. And they did that by contracting out to CVS and Walgreens. Other states have taken approaches that are right now controversial. For example, Florida creating large vaccination sites for people over the age of 65. But ultimately, the right answer has to be determined state by state. But it's pretty clear to me that we need to make sure that the vaccine is available very, very quickly with criteria that are clear about who's prioritized, but flexible enough to make sure that the vaccine can be delivered quickly in a particular context. We are also seeing a little bit of hesitancy from healthcare workers. The reporting shows that it's not necessarily doctors, uh, but different people who work at long-term care facilities uh, and at hospitals as well. What's the right messaging to make sure that they're fully informed on why they should get the vaccine? I think the messaging is simple, that uh, the vaccine is safe, it's effective, and fundamentally doesn't just help the person who takes them, it helps the rest of us. Because remember, what we're trying to achieve is collective immunity. So Tim, your being vaccinated helps me, my being vaccinated helps Carol. And I think there is a, a personal need to take the vaccine to make sure that we protect ourselves, but also a collective obligation to take the vaccine to improve our collective immunity. And I think that message I suppose, I go back to where I started, Carol, with yeah. you know, my mix of trepidation and hope. Mm-hmm. My hope is that in the next few weeks, that common sense is going to prevail, that enough people will recognize that we are dealing with a safe, effective vaccine to help us end a really terrible pandemic that has paralyzed the world. And we're going to see much less of that hesitancy in weeks going forward. I do want to ask you, and I have to say, um, Dr. Galea, Tim and I kind of went back and forth. Do we want to bring this up? But it is the second most read story on the Bloomberg. It's from the New York Times, and it talks about a Florida physician who developed an unusual blood disorder shortly after he received the Pfizer vaccine, not yet known if the shot is linked um, to the Ill- illness. And he did die from an unusually severe blood disorder uh, 16 days after receiving that vaccine. Help me out here. How are we to be smart about when we hear stories like this? Yeah, it's an excellent question. The, uh, what we have to remember is that vac- when you're giving vaccines to millions of people, the vaccine is a point in time and, and other things are going on in people's lives that precipitate illness. So it, it, it becomes very difficult for us as humans to say, well, the vaccine happened and something bad happened. Well, therefore, the vaccine must have caused it. The reassurance we have is that these vaccines that are in the market right now were tested on hundreds of thousands of people, literally. The side effects are every single one is monitored carefully by a review committee. And there's been nothing in the trials that suggests that these vaccines cause these kind of severe illnesses, like the one that's being right now discussed as potentially being in conjunction with somebody who took the vaccine. So this is true. This is true for all vaccines. And and a lot of the anti-vaccine movement that was really triggered by some shoddy science around children who took vaccines and then developed autism. And the the science has now pretty conclusively demonstrated 
that the development of autism, terrible diagnosis, mm-hmm. really had nothing to do with taking the vaccine. It was These were diagnoses that were going to happen anyway, and the vaccine was just one of a series of events. To think of it another way, if somebody develops a disease, well, we seldom go back and think of the fact, well, they crossed the street mm. two weeks before. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, if, if, we, if we actually focused on crossing the street, we may say, well, that person developed, developed the disease because he crossed the street. Now, I, I'm not saying that to minimize, and I, I really want to be careful that I'm not misunderstood, because mm-hmm. I do think that in a moment like this, all those cases should be taken seriously, and the science should be looking very carefully to make sure that there's nothing we're missing. But there are systems in place, and we as a country are very good at looking at these cases and making sure that there's nothing that we're missing. And Dr. Glea, we should note that the article goes further to point out that roughly 9 million people here in the U.S. have received the vaccine already. And as far as side effects go, the most serious problems recorded, reported were these uh, 29 cases of anaphylaxis. That's the severe allergic reaction. And none of those were, were fatal. Um, remind us, did you and get sorry, the... And, and those, Go ahead. And, and those were among people, sorry, and, and those were among people who previously had history of anaphylaxis and uh, right. allergic reactions to things. Sorry, go ahead, Tim. No, I was just going to remind us, did you get uh, vaccinated yet? No, I have not. I'm, uh, I, I don't, uh, I'm not patient-facing, meaning uh, you know, I run a school of public health, and uh, although a lot of our students and the number of our faculty deal with patients, I don't on a day-to-day basis, so I'm not in the, in the high-risk category. So I will, I will wait my turn when that comes in a few months. But you would be comfortable getting any of these vaccines that are available and have been tested now, right? Oh, oh if, I, if I could get the vaccine tomorrow, I would. But, uh, but I, 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 also, I also want to respect the fact that there are people who are higher risk than I am and they should get the vaccine first. But if, if, if the vaccine were available tomorrow, I would, I would indeed, because I, I would like to make sure that uh, I'm no longer at risk of getting COVID. And I think right. all, all your listeners should feel the same way. Listen, before we leave, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you 45 seconds here. Um, what's going on at the Boston University School of Public Health? Are you bringing students back? What's the expectation? And just got about 45 seconds. Yeah, the, 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 our, current, our current thinking is to do what we did in the fall, which is where we create the opportunity for students to learn in person if they, if they need to learn in person. We will teach some students in person, some digitally, so it will be a bit of a mix. But many universities, for example, like Princeton and Brown, who – they were not in person in the fall are now coming back in the spring and doing just that, which is saying to students, if you need to learn in person, your circumstances are such that you need to be here in person, we will create those conditions for you. And the students who want to learn from home can learn from home. Thank you so much. Always learn uh, so much when you come on with us. Uh, so thank you so much. Stay safe uh, and look forward to next time. Dr. Sandra Galea, he's dean at the Boston University School of Public Health, on the phone from Boston, and do check out his book. We've talked a lot about the inequities when it comes to healthcare. He's written a book. Uh, it's called Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. I mean, this is, I feel like, a conversation we have to continue to have. Yeah, I think one thing that's become clear is that the pandemic has exposed so much about our totally. society that so many people were familiar with, but mm-hmm. we're finally having a conversation of about the inequities and inequalities within our healthcare system and perhaps what we can do to finally start to address those. Yeah, life at large. And hopefully those conversations lead to actions. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Spotify, it's the most popular paid music service in the world. Stock soared something like 110% last year. It's up another 9% so far this year. And yet tiny little thing. It hasn't turned a profit since its founding back in 2006. (laughs) So what is its big bet of profitability? This story covers that. Reporting for Bloomberg Businessweek, Lucas Shaw. He is Bloomberg News Entertainment reporter on the phone in LA, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. This is such a smart story. Really, everything and anything you want to know about Spotify and its uh, plans to be profitable, Joel. 
Yeah, and if I rewind my relationship with with <laughs> Lucas, I think the very first time I met him when I like took over uh, Bloomberg Business Week, he he like stopped me in my tracks, and we just he was like podcast man, podcast, <laughs> and he's he's so right, and and this story is a modest reflection of it, and. The you know the the thing that I kind of love about it is you know Spotify has long been a music service and mm -hmm. along that way they realize that music is actually not that profitable. A lot of that revenue ends up having to go back to the record labels and they've been unsuccessful at really um, uh, being able to like have artists come directly to them. And, but what they've realized is that podcasts have gigantic revenue potential. So, so Lucas, Joe Rogan is the thing that um, everybody knows, but what does Spotify uh, have in the works? Spotify has you know, plans for any kind of show you can think of and then 10 other kinds of shows you probably never thought about. I mean, they bought Bill Simmons' company. He hosts a very popular sports podcast, and they're now working on dozens of different sports and pop culture shows. They have, you know, Jamel Hill coming in to work on a network of shows and by uh, four black women. They have Michelle Obama. They have the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. They make kind of really cheaply made true crime shows. They're working on shows all over the world, both as originals and translations. You know, think about the exhaustion you feel trying to consider how many different TV shows are available right now and then multiply that times about 100 or 1,000 for podcasts. So for years, Lucas, this was a sort of idea of experience when it came to music streaming services, right? The same music was offered on Apple Music, that was offered on Spotify, some people had Tidal, whatever YouTube or Google was calling the, you know, their current music service had the same music. Um, but now it seems to have changed because of, of podcasts. Do you see this sort of evolving in the way that streaming video services have evolved where if you want to listen to Joe Rogan or if you want to listen to Michelle Obama, the only place to do that ultimately will be with a Spotify subscription. I think it'll be very similar to, to streaming TV, but with a, a slight change in that some of the podcasts may still want to be available everywhere. There is not a, a dominant player in podcasting. Spotify is not there yet, especially not in the U.S., and so for some shows, it, it really hurts their potential audience size to only be there. But you'll see them play with windows of exclusivity, and there's lots of different forms of that. So the Michelle Obama podcast started as a Spotify exclusive. Now that it's, it's been off for several months and Spotify sort of sucked up all the potential customers, it has been distributed more widely in other places. A show like The Rewatchables, which Bill Simmons' company makes, where they kind of talk about old movies, all those new episodes are available everywhere, but if you want to go back and listen to any of the older episodes, you have to go to Spotify. So I think we're going to see a lot of playing with that, and definitely Spotify's competitors are starting to do the same. You know, Amazon just bought Wondery, which is a podcast studio, and has struck rights for exclusive shows. Apple has a handful of exclusive shows, but I think we're going to see them really increase that investment at some point in the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, just on the rewatchables, I highly recommend the Point Break episode. That is, <laughs> I knew like, you were going to go there. Mine. Yeah, it, it's so good. But but Lucas, you you brought up um, a, a couple of competitors there, and you know Apple is one that I'm 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 really curious about because you know a couple of years ago when they spun off podcasts as a separate thing from from iTunes, this was before sort of Apple Music. They they sort of had a missed opportunity there, and it seems like Spotify's really doubled down on it and by making 
uh, 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 podcasts such as Steamless part of the the user interface. So so who's who's ultimately the, on the team within Spotify that's that's you know cracked this code? Well, it started with uh, an executive named Courtney Holt, I would say, who joined after had a long career in media. He dabbled in trying to make original videos work at, at Spotify, and then quickly glommed on to this idea of building a podcasting apparatus he knew he was smart enough to kind of know what he didn't know and so he went out kind of armed with the, the checkbook to buy a bunch of companies that were studios they could bring in to create the infrastructure right away so they bought gimlet media which uh, is a, a really good podcast studio based in new york perhaps best known for the, the show reply all the guys who run gimlet media are now spotify employees are overseeing a lot of the podcasting business not just gimlet they bought Parcast, which was another studio based in Los Angeles. They bought Anchor, which was a technology company they brought in. Again, they bought the, the Simmons company. And so they have, you know, there's a whole new part of that business. I was talking with somebody on the music side recently who acknowledged that there were hundreds of Spotify employees in an entire kind of group and team that they didn't know and they almost never interfaced with. And it's, it's a really, you know, it's a bet the company kind of move for Spotify. So I got to ask you, I mentioned uh, coming in the stock uh, up more than 100% last year. So investors are kind of betting big. They've got expectations. Um, Lucas, have they cracked the code for becoming profitable based on all of your reporting? Uh, I got to say, those uh, ad insertions, those streaming ad insertions drive me crazy. Um, but If you're paying but, for it, it does, right? <laughs> yeah. So I do wonder, like, have they cracked the code? The way I like to think about it is that, that Daniel Ek, Spotify's CEO, has bought himself time to figure it out. They definitely have not cracked the code yet. Podcasting is still a very small business. Um, and I agree that kind of delivering ads to people who pay for Spotify premium is something that they might have to work on in the future. But what they're trying to do is to just continue to get bigger and bigger. Spotify now has more than 300 million customers, more than 140 million paid. If they can get to 500 million users, 600 million users, 700 million users, that becomes so big that I just think that advertisers have to take it seriously, and you'll see more of that money shift over from radio, because radio, for all of its problems, in the U.S. alone is like a 13, 14, 15 billion dollar business. If Spotify can take five billion of that money at a better margin than it has on the, on, on the paid service, right. then it becomes a real business. We're just not there yet. Yeah, well, expectations are definitely high on Wall Street. Um, it's an incredible story. There's so much detail. It's such a smart read and another great report by Lucas Shaw. Lucas, thank you so much. Entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News with us on the phone from L.A. Check him out at Twitter at Lucas underscore Shaw. Jill Weber, of course, editor at Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access from Brooklyn. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week and a top story today because I think it's safe to say that many of us believe that in figuring out what went wrong last Wednesday, the riot and breaching of the Capitol, we need to understand those that did it, ask the question why, and we need to talk to them, Tim. Yeah, we do. Um, this was just a fascinating piece by our colleague, William Turton. No regrets a Capitol rioter tells his story from the inside. 
And I think a lot of people are wondering, what were these people thinking? And fortunately, we have William with us to really help shine a light on that. Yeah, he's on the phone in New York City, the story among the most read on the Bloomberg. William, so good to have you here. Uh, it's a must read for everyone. So tell us about the individual that you talked to, Brandon Fellows. Hi, thanks for having me on. So yeah. Brandon Fellows is a 26-year-old from upstate New York who decided to go to the Trump rally when he saw a tweet from President Trump in December. He said there's going to be a big rally on the 6th in D.C. He said, be there. It will be wild. So when, when Fellows saw that tweet, he decided to go to D.C. And, you know, something really revealing that he told me is that, you know, while he does believe the election was rigged and, and he has been, you know, consuming a lot of content about election fraud, his primary motivation was his anger at uh, government shutdowns due to, due to coronavirus. Uh, hmm. Uh, which I thought was really kind of fascinating. Yeah, that part was really interesting, William. And I, and I wonder, too, what it says about yes. the idea of, you know, there's so much psychology here, right? Like, why were these people who many of whom are now apologizing, what what sort of sparked them to, to actually make this move to, right. to do something? Right. Um, and, and what did he tell you about that? Well, something fascinating about Brandon is that um, he had never been to a Trump rally before. And when he came to this, uh, a rally, he didn't even know that there was a march. He simply came to see, see Trump speak. So he quite literally got swept up into the mob um, when he joined this march. And by the time he had already reached the Capitol, the outside perimeter had been breached. So, you know, he walked onto the Capitol lawn and scaled a wall and, and eventually climbed through a window to get into the Senate. And once inside, he got into the office of Senator Merkley, a Democrat from Oregon, um, where he put his feet up on the table and smoked a joint. Why did he, wow. did he understand he was breaking the law by doing that? You know, it's, it's hard to know. He, he claims that because he wasn't being arrested while inside, and in fact the police officer gave him directions to the statue hall inside the Capitol, that, you know, he was under the assumption he wasn't doing anything wrong. Right. Um, you know, of course, <laughs> the kind of, is difficult to believe, but, but you, you know, I think it's revealing. He, he did not think that he was going to get in trouble for, for doing this based on the reaction of the police officers. You know, you, you talk about in the piece that he's had some friction with his family uh, over this yeah. and, and over his beliefs. A lot um, of friction, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and I yeah. think it, it's, it's probably something that we're, a lot of us can relate to with the way that disagreements totally. politically are, are happening right now. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering after talking to him, um, take us through like what he's planning to do moving forward. I mean, how, do, how does one move past an inflection point like this? Well, you know, I'm not sure in speaking to him if he's actually grappled with the fact that he's done something wrong. Um, you know, and, and, you know, one of the reasons we know that is because he's planning actually to return to D.C. Uh, for, for more events uh, on the 20th surrounding the inauguration. Uh, but, you know, I think you both made a really interesting point at the beginning of this program in that, you know, some people will say that, that we shouldn't listen to people and, and that by talking to them, it's, it's platforming them. But mm. I think they're wrong. It's actually really important to understand the psychology and motivations of these people. And there's a really good example of that. I mean, these folks said that they planned to storm the Capitol on the 6th. No one listened to them. No one took them seriously. And then they actually did it. Um, so, you know, I, I think just in general, we need to we need to 
actually listen to what these people are saying. Well, William, Tim and I were talking beforehand, you know, I really do want to understand these voters. I know Tim does too. Like, how did we get to this point? And we need to stop ignoring, you know, parts of the voting public or parts of the country, because this is how we get to these places. I mean, you tell his story. He lives in a converted school bus. He stopped working last spring because of fears of COVID-19. And you said, you know, he became disillusioned when New York State denied him unemployment benefits. I mean, we have, we talked about that opioid epidemic in the past that people who were just kind of lost in society i mean we really need to understand these stories and these individuals who feel like there is no voice for them and this is where the president in many large ways you know did speak to them right but i think it's also important to understand that these people are becoming radicalized by the internet i mean Mm, he told me that he gets the majority of his news from youtube Mm. he pointed out ben shapiro and, and Steven Crowder. He also said he's recently started watching Newsmax and uh, One America News, which have both promoted false claims of a rigged election. So, you know, the culpability of platforms like YouTube and Facebook um, and Twitter are, are apparent in, in, this, in this riot. It's no different than, forgive me, because I'm hearing radicalized by the internet. It's no different than we talked about terrorists, right? We think about 9-11 and after 9-11 that individuals who are being radicalized by the internet, we saw that yeah. as a bad thing. Yes. I mean, a lot of folks who ended up joining the Islamic State were radicalized by YouTube. Right. I mean, it, it, it's it didn't just happen on the Homeland series. I'm just going to say, folks, it didn't just yeah. happen on Homeland. Well, yeah. w- William, you bring up a really good point because you mentioned news networks, One America News. You mentioned Newsmax and, and you talked about YouTube and the, the the platforms that have really gotten all the attention in the last six days have been Twitter and Facebook because of their actions against President Trump and and Amazon because of its deplatforming of, of Parler. But the conversation is much bigger when it comes to the message and the, the radicalization, right? Right. And, and you make a good point. I mean, YouTube is really dodging uh, a lot of criticism here that, that, that I think needs to be focused on them. I mean, their platform is sort of unlike any other in terms of pumping out misinformation. And for years now, uh, you know, the algorithm, the YouTube recommendation algorithm, has prioritized the most diver- uh, divisive content, which pushes people to the kind of more crazier and zanier conspiracies. And, and you, know, you know, from what we've been able to tell, YouTube has done very little to address this. I, I, I wonder, I mean, you obviously can't make prescriptions here, but... Um you know, what, what does, why do you think YouTube has avoided some of the conversation that we've seen over the last week? Why do you think it's sort of the, the sleeping giant when it comes to radicalization? Well, it's really hard for journalists and researchers and other people to actually kind of quantify and show the amount of misinformation because of the, the nature of videos themselves. I mean, it's kind of like a, a law of large numbers problem. I mean, in, in a tweet or a Facebook post, right, it's apparent, right? You can just see a screenshot and you can see what's happening. But in videos that, you know, maybe are 30 minutes or an hour long, it's, it's way more nuanced and, and way more difficult to actually moderate. Um, so, you know, but I mean, is it, but and that's why people focus on the recommendation algorithm as a thing that they could do to not prioritize this kind of most uh, divisive content. Our thanks to our William Turton, uh, cybersecurity reporter. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Drive away.
This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yep, tick tock, everyone. About 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Charlie giving you that uh, rundown. And we're bouncing around. We're off, definitely off our lows. In fact, we're working our way up. We're back in the green uh, here when it comes to those major averages. Uh, great to have back with us, Yana Burton. She's co director of Growth Equity over at Advance. She joins us on the phone from Boston. Um, nice to have you here. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. What's going on in your world? Tell me, like, we, you know, we turned the calendar page. <laughs> Not a lot really changes. But I have to say the last week, um, I think there's a lot of soul searching about democracy, what our nation means, thinking about politics, what a new administration ultimately is going to mean, and, and what division means within not just politics, but within our nation. So I don't know, is there some way to tie that in and, and come out with an outlook on the other side? Well said. I think uh, change is the only constant, right? So mm -hmm. I think as an equity investor, you have to appreciate that there are always cross-currents in the marketplace, geopolitical, economic. Uh, now we're in the midst of a pandemic uh, with uh, hopefully some uh, light at the end of the tunnel. But I think, again, um, given some prospect for investors, it's no surprise that equity markets could be volatile. That's why S&P 500 actually declines on average about 15% per year. But over the long term, over the past uh, five, 10 years, it's generated in excess of that. Um, wait, wait, explain that again. Basis. You're saying on average, the S&P is down for the year 15%? No, what, I, what I'm saying is, on average, you usually experience what folks refer to as a drawdown, meaning oh, okay. if you look from the peak to the trough levels. Got it. On any uh, sort of uh, calendar year basis or 12-month period that you look at, on average, it's about a 15% decline. Last year, unfortunately, most of us remember it was twice that level, where S&P 500 declined almost 34%. So I guess to your point, we've got a lot to digest right now, both on the fundamental basis as well as the macro basis as well as the political side of the equation. But I think as an investor, our job is to look forward. And as we sit here today, we think that this is going to be a good backdrop for equity investors, particularly those focused on the long term. Why? Because secular stories that we've talked about for many, many years are still with us, but now we can play those alongside cyclical stories, so the economic recovery in the industrials, in the consumer discretion, discretionary space, as well as some of the stable, um, stable areas of the market like healthcare. So plenty of opportunities for investors. Well, so Yana, what, what, what are the stories that are, that are playing out in, in some of these, what, what you call mispriced or underappreciated opportunities, um, starting with healthcare? Yeah, well, healthcare, I know I've talked to Carol many times before mm -hmm. about healthcare, Tim. This is my first time talking to you about healthcare, but healthcare has been uh, um, underappreciated by investors for a very long time, and I know this is our uh, 12th day of the year, but it's finally working. Mm -hmm. This is a perfect area of the market where I think it's a hybrid. It offers investors both the earnings growth opportunity, the sector is expected to generate about 10% earnings growth next year, but it's trading at over 20% discount on a multiple basis relative to the S&P 500. So you're basically, um, you know, allowing investors to participate in this growth at a significant discount to the market. And this is one of the few sectors of the market that are that is very idiosyncratic. And what I mean by that is you have defensive um, areas of the market like pharmaceuticals, but you also have high growth areas of the market like life science tools. I mean, um, it's, you know, I have to say it's pretty remarkable. I was just 
just doing a quick kind of playing around the Bloomberg and bringing up the S&P 500 healthcare sector. It's one of the major industry groups in the S&P. And you're right. Like, I mean, we've seen some gains last year, but it was 11%. It was 18% in 2019. Uh, in 2018, it was up maybe about four and a half. It's just amazing. It's despite we know that everybody's going to need more and more healthcare going forward. It's it's pretty anemic to some extent in comparison uh, in terms of the returns, Yana. You're absolutely right. I think a lot of this blame is really carried by the political um, mm. backdrop that unfortunately many Makes of these sense. companies were hit with. And unfortunately, regulatory or political uncertainty doesn't usually bode well for multiples. But I think we're at this inflection point where um, I think the, the, the silver lining behind COVID is look what the human ingenuity and the innovation has enabled us to do, which is to provide uh, folks with a vaccine in less than a year. Right, So the picks and shovels of that business are legit, and now you have increased funding, you have tech advancement that I really think is revolutionizing both drug development and delivery of much-needed therapies, not just in fighting the virus, but other chronic diseases like cancer and others. So I really think this is one area of the market where investors will be well-served because there's so many unique stories that are still trading at such discount to the market. What about when it comes to technology? Because what's been getting a lot of attention, of course, over the last year has been what we, you know, what is referred to as big tech, both in a good way and also in a pejorative way, too, I think. Um, <laughs> software, services, security. What are the companies that or the themes that, that you're seeing or, or looking for in 2021? Uh, great point. Last year, again, information technology was the best performing sector of the market at 44%. What most folks don't appreciate is only a third of the sector outperformed the overall sector, meaning only a third of companies. So you've got hundreds of companies and only a third were able to match the sector returns. Why? Because many of the sort of accelerants were driven by the fangs or the big cap guys, right? And what I'd like to highlight is a big um, long-term secular themes are with us. It's expected that we're going to spend somewhere close to $3.8 trillion on IT services this year, wow. just IT in general. And less than 10% is still being spent right. on cloud and security. And guess what? We're going to need a lot more of it. So yeah, that's that our tailwind is with us and those companies uh, will benefit. Well, Yana, good to uh, check in with you in this new year. Yana Barton, she's co-director of growth equity over at Eaton Vance on the phone from Boston. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.